0: This message is from Icon from Community. From Icon church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro Atlanta. defined by Grace Community. Community, community and, and renewal. renewal.
1: Community and renewal.
0: For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. or follow us on Facebook. Instagram, a Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Today's scripture is from the Gospel of John, chapter five. Uh, Verses 1 through 23. After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk, they asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said, see, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus responded to them, my father is still working, and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing, For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. And he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. And just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son also gives life to whom he wants. The father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son so that all people may honor the son just as they honor the father. Anyone who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we just sang those words, I pray that this would be true of our hearts, that we have come here for you. We've come here because of you. Father, there are so many things that are doubtlessly on our minds, heavy things, maybe things that are encouraging. God, all those things are true and they're real in our lives. And yet, God, I pray that it's because of who you are uh, that we are here. I pray that even as we uh, dig into your word, God, you would show yourself uh, to be more present in our lives than ever before, uh, that we would know that you care to enter into exactly where we are. God, you told us to pray your kingdom come as Natasha just prayed, to pray your kingdom to be here on earth as it is in heaven. And so, God, I pray that just a piece of heaven would encroach into this place right now, through your word and through your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. We have been in this series on on John, and and, uh, I'm really thankful that we chose this gospel, uh, because as we've said before, John is so unique and very different from some of the other gospel writers. They're all great and wonderful, but when you really think through just who John is and his goal, you see just how much John kind of wants to make us aware that Jesus is more than just a man. And that Jesus is more than a really good savior. And that Jesus is more than just a really good example of what morality should look like. He goes out of his way to make sure. You see this in John 20 where where he says, these things are written that you might believe that he is the Messiah. That he is Jesus the Christ. So understand, like any story we read, any miracle uh, we read, John has written this down so that it would make us bigger believers in Jesus. And it's important because part of this story that we're going to read, we can make it about something other than Jesus. It's often the case whenever, depending on the kind of church backgrounds we have, anytime you get to a story about healing, it immediately turns into how I can get my healing. It doesn't actually make you go, "How, how does this make me believe that Jesus is not only a healer, but that he's God? What about this? So anytime we're reading John, he's made his express purpose known. I want you to be a bigger believer in who Jesus is. I want you to understand that Jesus is indeed God. And so anything we read or study or believe or we hold to here, it should hopefully deepen and enlarge our view of who Jesus is. And so uh, in, when you think about who Jesus is, that impacts every single thing that you do, the way that you think, the way that you live, what you believe, uh, how you behave, all of that thing, all of those things are affected by who Jesus is. So it matters that we believe the right things about him. As a matter of fact, our very relationship with him kind of depends on how we understand who he is. That's how we continually grow. So we're gonna talk about another topic uh, today that really should be impacted by our understanding of who Jesus is. So let me lead you with this question. Is it okay, is it ever okay to challenge authority? Like All the people that are like, real, I'm all about challenging. They're all shaking their heads like, that's right. I wait for an authority to challenge. Like I can't wait. I wait with bated breath. We, we, of course, would say absolutely there are times where challenging authority is appropriate. If I were to ask you to list off examples of that, history is replete with examples of, of things that we have looked at as acceptable times to challenge authority. The Protestant Reformation. Who was the authority? The Catholic Church. The American Revolution, who was the authority? British monarchy. The French Revolution, who was the authority? The French monarchy. Abolitionists, and underground railroad, and the Fugitive Slave Act, people were fighting against that. Who was the authority? The United States government. Let me ask it another way. Is it ever okay to have your authority challenged? Less head shakes on that one. Less head nods. I wonder why. Is it ever okay for your authority to be challenged. Immediately, you could think of all the other authorities that ought to be challenged. How often are you okay with yours being challenged? Now, there are are certain cases where we would all agree, we can come up with some cases and say, yeah, my authority shouldn't be challenged. For example, if there's a child, right, over whom you have some degree of authority or responsibility, right, it may be your child, may not be your child, but for the time being, they're in your responsibility, your care. And so if they were to look at you and go, I don't have to do what you say, you're not my mama, we would say this kid has a problem with authority, right? Because on some level we've accepted that, that uh, whatever it is that this child needs, they don't know what they need yet. They've been put in my, in my care, so I'm going to know what's best for them in this moment. They ought not challenge my authority here, right? You see, whenever authority is challenged, the challenger holds to a foundational principle, whether right or wrong. There's a certain foundation, there's a certain thing that they hold to, there's a certain paradigm, a certain way of living, a certain view of the world, a certain thing that we hold to that we say, this is right. This is how things should be. And what happens is that authority, whatever it is, again, whether it's right or wrong, we won't talk about that yet, but whatever it is, the moment that something violates that. Let's say that there's something in the status quo, something that's acceptable, that the, the general culture accepts the thing, but it violates some value or something that you hold to that, is, that you believe is absolutely true, then it's time to challenge it, right? If there's something that you just think this is the way life should be, this is the way things should be done, we all believe, right, there are certain things that guide us. There's an inner authority that guides what we do and what we won't do. Now call it whatever you want. There's something inside of you that governs whether or not you will think a certain thing or whether or not you will do a certain thing or whether or not you will allow or tolerate a certain thing, what you will believe, what you won't believe. There's an inner authority that's dictating these things, these things in our mind that says things ought to be done this way. People ought to act this way. People should speak this way. Now, the reason why I have to bring this up is because I don't care who you are you have something that's guiding you in that way. And whatever it is that you're using, a good portion of that is very subjective. Now, you're not gonna believe that some of those things are subjective, especially if you're good church folk. Because here's what happens. There are things that subjectively you create or have been created for you and kind of hoisted upon you, maybe at childhood, a a paradigm in which you judge the world and function. And then if you grew up in church, uh, you have enough scripture to to lay on top of it or to sprinkle over it. So now that authority is what you call biblical authority, but it it actually may not be at all. It just happens to coincide with this subjective authority you're holding to. You follow it. So, so, so it's really important that we kind of get on, how do I identify what real authority is? Because there has to be a sense of authority that is objective and not just subjective. So for those, especially again, for believers, it can be really easy for us to have, right, some man-made or, or human-made rules, human wi- uh, rules and, and, and guidelines uh, and then we combine scripture with it, and now we're like flabbergasted when anybody dares to challenge those things. We're going to see that example here in this text, but we, we are flabbergasted. Let me, a quick example, right? Because you guys want to like, what is a, a clear example of this? Throughout the scriptures, you'll see, we're going we're gonna to look at these religious leaders that did this. It's really easy to say, there's a principle that we all agree with. God says, this particular thing is sin, Right? So we understand sin, this offends the heart of God, something we should take seriously. Anything God calls sin, it offends the very heart of God. Okay, so what we're called to do is avoid whatever that sin is. Now, we all have ways to to grapple with whatever that sin is. So we create some rules for ourselves to, to keep ourselves from violating that thing. Those rules are not necessarily the things that came from God. Those rules hopefully are born out of a desire to please God, but the rules themselves don't necessarily come from God, right? It it helps us individually. What worked for you may not work for me. What helps you battle your sin may not help me battle my sin, right? But the moment I use that as this objective authority, so now it's like I'm not just sad for you that you're caught up in a certain sin. I'm angry because you're not following the same rules I followed. To fight that sin. Do you see? That, that is something we actually talked about before. You almost start uh, mis- mistaking, right, the, 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 the means for the message. The way that I get this message across, the way that I live out this message, that's subjectively for me. The message itself shouldn't change, but the means oftentimes do. Now, this is, when you, when you, when you think about this, think about it this way. We have to ensure that our ideas, right, are not just something that's created on our own and then we call it authoritative. We have to make sure that we're not just creating something for ourselves, finding enough verses to puzzle piece and fit them in, and then saying, this is all from God. Got to be really careful not to do that. It's super easy to do it. And I know enough of the background to everybody here. We all come from some kind of church background that does that. You know why? Because that's who we are. That's just our nature. We find something and we fit it. We find anything we can to fit that in. And then we, we pour enough of ourselves into something that might be true. And now we've got this combination, kind of weird hybrid that's not even God anymore. So with all that said, when is it right then to really challenge authority? What is the thing that governs whether or not our authority the authority we're challenging, how do we know if we're not just operating from something subjective? How do we know if we're really operating from something objectively true? And I would, I would give you this. I would put this motion before you. Challenging authority should happen whenever the heart of God is not adequately displayed. This is vital for the challenger and the challenged. In other words, if I'm gonna challenge something, I have to make sure that the place, that the heart posture that I have is rooted in God's heart. In other words, the heart of God is the only objective authority by which we challenge and by which we are challenged. That's it. So it's like if I'm challenging something, hopefully I'm challenging it because it's the heart of God that's not on display that's causing me to go, I've got to say something, I've got to speak out into this, I've got to do something about this because God's heart it's not being imaged well. And this is the case in our text today. This passage, John 5, 1 through 23, this is the story, famous story, the healing of a paralyzed man. And it's also the story of the Jewish leader's response. We're going to talk about the, the, the healing of this man and this incredible miracle. But I actually think that sometimes it's, it's common for preachers especially for us to focus so much on the miracle and miss the man completely. It's really easy to do that because we want to make it about us. So I could easily turn this into, how do you trust God for your healing? And you missed the whole point of the actual story. Because the real point of the story is not just the fact that a healing occurred. We've seen that happen and we're going to see it happen again. What John wants you to see is what the response to the healing is. How did people, specifically leaders who have a certain, uh, uh, a certain belief in a certain authority, and they respond with that authority in mind, How are we prone then to either challenge or be challenged? So you see this case here. When you look at uh, these first few verses, John chapter 5, if you don't have it, and we've had it read, but I would encourage you to have it before you again. There's a lot in this. It says, uh, after, after this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there's a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, this is the second of five trips to Jerusalem Jesus will eventually make. He's made five trips eventually, and this is the second of those. And the scripture says that he went there for a, a Jewish festival. Another way to put it, some versions will put it, uh, a feast of the Jews. Now, there were several, we talked about this, several festivals during Passover that the Jews celebrate. We don't know which one uh, was occurring here. As a matter of fact, John is rather, he's not descriptive at all as to which one of these festivals uh, they are. Now, you look at other gospel writers, depending on their audience, they're very specific because they have a very Jewish audience. This proves, this just lets us know, John is not just talking to a Jewish audience here. He's speaking in some generalities because he's also talking to a Gentile or a non-Jewish audience, which is also really encouraging, right? To be able to see that from the beginning, even though it says salvation is from the Jews, God had this plan for all to hear this message. And so he just shares, hey, there was a festival going on. Really doesn't matter which one it was. Uh, It actually matters kind of some of the details, though. So they don't tell us exactly uh, when this was, uh, but it does tell us where it was. Says that it was in a place near the Sheep Gate. That just sounds weird, I'm sure, like the Sheep Gate. I got a chance to go to Israel, and I got a chance to visit this very area. And uh, it's known as either the Sheep Gate, it's known also as St. Stephen's Gate, it's also known as Lion's Gate. And so when you go there, you'll see those different names, depending on where you're, you're at in that, in that little area. And near that gate, uh, apparently, uh, this is in the northeast corner of Jerusalem, and somewhere near there, uh, according to the scriptures here, uh, there is a pool called Bethesda. Now, this whole part of the story used to be very peculiar to most scholars. Not that they don't maybe understand what's being said here, but there was a problem. See, for the longest time, we knew that this particular pool in this area is never mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. It's not mentioned anywhere. As a matter of fact, it's only mentioned in the Old Testament during the rebuilding of the walls of Nehemiah. You hear this reference being made to this pool. But that's it. You don't really see it anywhere. So you don't see it in the New Testament anywhere. For a really long time, uh, skeptics started to believe that it didn't exist. For a really long time. Now, you look at the name. The the name of the pool is really important, too. This name, uh, Bethesda, means house of, of mercy. Some people think it's a combination of Beth and Hesda. Right? In Aramaic and in Hebrew, that word is an, a word for shame and disgrace as well. So some people think it might have had a double meaning. Right, you got a place of mercy. It's also a place of shame and disgrace. Why? Because apparently a lot of people who were paralyzed or what people would call invalids, uh, they, that's what they would call them back then, they would be just left there at the pool. So there was a sense of shame and disgrace because of the way people who had any type of disability, any type of, of thing in their body that wasn't working well, people just treated them like just luggage that needed to be disposed of. And so this may have had a double meaning, but we just know that on some level, this pool was a place where these folks would just be left there. Now, as I said, uh, people thought that this was not uh, a real place. They started wondering uh, if this was even there because they couldn't see any more evidence. They didn't even find much in the way of archaeological evidence. They would look up structures around that area, and they just couldn't find it Until the 1800s, they had done some excavations near this area known as St. Anne's Church, which is right near Lion's Gate, or Sheep's Gate, or St. Stephen's Gate. And what they found were two pools that were right next to, not far from, the gate within this area. It had been built upon and built on top of things, and churches would be built. That church, by the way, had been there since about 1100 AD, so it was really old. A lot of things had been on top of that. And as they were excavating, they find these two pools. I actually got a chance to go to those pools. And what's interesting is, you know, the scripture says that there are five what they call colonized. These are also known as porticos, if you have a King James Bible. It just means porch. And when I went there, you can count them, five porches right there. And it was just incredible to be able to get a feel for just how real this kind of a story is. Like this is, if nothing else, these details are very real. And you see uh, the, the evidence that this uh, pool, these pools actually existed. And when you go there, it's interesting. You see these two pools with this little thing that connects them. And you can see like they're trapezoidal shaped and, and some one's a little bit larger than the other. And you could almost imagine just people being left on these different porches, just hoping to get into the water. Now, uh, the other thing we have to know is when you uh, depending on what version you have, I don't know if you notice. Like in our Bibles now, you'll notice. And I don't know if you ever well, wonder about this, but you'll notice that a verse is kind of skipped here. If you look at uh, the CSB Bible, it goes right from three to five. Why would that even be, right? Well, part of the reason is because verse four, then in some versions include verse four, uh, talks about how uh, uh, it's a. It's a. There's a story about possibly an angel that would come down and stir the pool, right? And in stirring the pool, they believe that then folks will be able to go and be healed. Now, the most reliable manuscripts we have don't have this. And most people think that might have been added to add some color and some commentary to what was going on. Um, but so, so was there an actual angel stirring? We don't know for sure. Uh, people seem to really believe that something was happening, though, because that's why they would have been left there. And so, so that, it makes sense that when you get to verse 5 and you see what transpires. You get to verse 5, one man was there. Well, first... Real quick, verse 3, it says there were a large number of the disabled, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. So we know this was a place that a lot of people were left hoping to be healed. In verse 5, one man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Imagine. I mean, we all have something. Something we've been struggling with or something that we've been dealing with or something that's been nagging us. But imagine having something like this for 38 years. I mean, how long is too long before you just give up, right? Year one, you get brought. This man has probably been brought. It's been tradition for everybody. He's probably been brought there every year just hoping this would be the time because people would constantly just be brought to these places over and over and over and over, just hoping that something might heal, hoping something might happen. So this man's been there for 38 years, somehow still there, somehow still hoping, somehow having some degree of faith that something might help him. And Jesus sees him, and then he says, do you want to get well? Now this, this almost seems comical, right? Why? Because Jesus never asks you a question he doesn't know the answer to. That's just something we need to know. He, whenever Jesus asks you a question, it's not because he's inquisitive, right? It's not because he's like, you know, I, I'd love to add to my knowledge base. Can you give me this? Jesus is never that. He's omniscient. He's God. He knows everything. Uh, we saw this earlier, right? Because when he saw Nathaniel, when he met Nathaniel, Nathaniel was shocked at how much he already knew about him. When he saw the woman at the well, he was shocked at all the things he already knew about her. Many times, Jesus asks us questions so that we get moved by our own answers. Many times, we have to hear ourselves even answer to be able to get to know what's really true within me. See, a lot of times, we have friends that don't ask us the right questions. We have a lot of people that actually don't know uh, how to dig to the very core of where we are. And a lot of times, as friends, we aren't encouraged to be those kinds of friends, right? Right? We're encouraged to be the kind of people that are just going to really make you feel good and encourage you, which is important and we need that. But sometimes we need to ask questions that are going to press into maybe where your deepest needs are, maybe where your deepest fears are, or maybe even where your deepest sin struggles are. So when Jesus asks a question, it's not just so that he can get more information, it's for you to actually be moved by those answers. Maybe move to a place of repentance, maybe move to a place of comfort, but it's there to really move you. It's not really to move or inform him. So we asked them this question. Now, here's where this text could often, in my opinion, be a little abused. Because many times people can look at this, and here's the application we get from this. Jesus looks at this man, sees already, he knows, the scripture says, he realized he had been there a really long time. And he says, do you want to get well? Here's where people love to go with this. So this really shows, this really shows that Jesus is trying to test this man's faith. So they'll go, if you want to see your situation change, you have to, to want to see it changed. If you want to see your situation change, you have to first know you need it and want to see it changed, which in and of itself isn't necessarily untrue. But that actually, that actually isn't what John's trying to get across. Again, think about what John is doing here. He's not trying to get you to go, all right, here's the thing. At no time should you feel like that you have to have more faith in your faith than faith in God. And many times what happens in a lot of preachers and a lot of, it's really easy to get to this place of like, you need more faith, you need more faith, you need more faith. No, you need more Jesus. He knows you don't have the faith. So this isn't really a situation where he's trying to get this uh, man to go, okay, uh, I see Jesus. He's been there 38 years. Of course he wants to get better. He's not sitting there going, okay, pop quiz. Do you really want this? That would just feel like such an unnecessary flex, Right? So, he, uh, he asked him this question. Here's what we need to take from this. We said this before. Jesus cares about your story. He asks questions to show you that he knows you, he asks questions to show you that he hears you. He, he, he asks questions so that you know that he sees you, and he cares about the details of your situation. When the man begins to explain what happened, This is Jesus displaying something else here. What was happening here? The man says, listen, I've been coming here for a really long time, and every time I get lowered down, I'm waiting for my turn. But when my turn comes, the people who might be a little bit more able than I am seem to skip over me, and no one seems to care about the fact that I don't get access to this quote-unquote healing. In other words, this might step on toes. In other words, there's a form of Jewish health care, That's right there before me. And yes, I have access. Yes, you can remind me. It's right there. Just go get it. It's right there. Just just find a way to crawl to it. It's right there. Just make your way because it's there. There's nothing else we need to do but to tell you that it's available. Figure out how to get there. That's all people have been telling them. It's like, When I'm watching all these other people who know how to exploit the system so that they can get some of their needs met, but I don't. You see, Jesus sees a real brokenness in the way this system is working right now. Do you see that? There's a whole, this, these folks, this is their last chance for health. This is the last chance they have to find a way to, to remedy some of the brokenness in their bodies. And they just believe all I've got to do is get in the water. If they believe the angels are stirring it, I've just got to wait to get there, wait for the angels to stir, and then get in the water, and I'll be healthy. This man's been there 38 years, couldn't even get in the water because people have just pushed him aside. See, if you don't believe that Jesus doesn't care about your story and how it connects to even broken systems, this isn't the Jesus that you see in the scriptures. So you see this man who is telling him the story, and he's like, Here's where I am. Uh, The system has really failed me. Everybody else has access to this health care, but I don't. It's in front of me, and it's technically available to me, but everybody else can take advantage of it, and this is where I am, and I don't really know what I'm going to do, and I just need somebody to lower me there. And he said, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. And instantly, the man got well, and he picked up his mat, and he started to walk. Now, that day was the Sabbath. Now, real quick, just a quick aside. The fact that this man goes out of his way to explain how bad the system had failed him, clearly watching other people benefit on some level from a system that was in theory supposed to be available to all, right? Because things can ostensibly look like it's available to all, but then in reality, it's not available to all. But then for those of us who have it, we can just say, it was available to me. It's available to you. Good luck. He's just been in that for a minute. And now Jesus sees that. You know what he does? Immediately he goes, with just his words, you're good. With just his words, he says, get up and walk. There's something about his words here that, that in many ways reminds, should remind us of like the creative word of God we see even in the beginning. Like you just see this kind of creative power in the word. When Jesus uses his word, he's showing you something. He's showing you the similarities between God the Father. That no one has creative power, healing power, just in their words outside of Yahweh God. And for Jesus to do that, he's, you see John is trying to show us that Jesus is more than just a good man. So, so he says these words to this man and the man picked up his mat and walked. This evidence of complete healing. Now, some scholars believe that maybe uh, because of the the, the movement of the the waters, uh, they think that maybe there may have been some healing qualities in the water, and some people might be healed temporarily, and they would have to come back again and again and again. And so this picture of this man getting up and walking, he'll never have to go to that water again. There's this picture of complete healing that happens. And this is one of those interesting miracles where Jesus performs without any real sign of faith on the part of the beneficiary. That's really interesting, right? There are certain cases where Jesus heals completely regardless of whether or not the person, the object of the healing, has faith. Want another example? Remember uh, when Peter loses his temper, cuts off Malchus's ear, and then Jesus is like, no, 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 that's not how we roll, Peter. Give me your ear, man. I got you. I got you and just kind of pats it back on and heals again. Can you imagine how crazy that would have been, by the way? Imagine that dude telling the story like, yo, my ear cut off completely, and this dude, I don't know, spit on his hand and just rubbed it in there real quick. That'd be a crazy story. There's no evidence of that man having faith before that. We gotta be careful. Like, when do we start saying that it's almost kind of a voodoo quality to God when we talk this way. Before you get this, you gotta have this faith. Before you get, you know that the majority, for almost every one of us, It wasn't our faith that even got us here, right? It was God pressing through cold hearts that got you before you ever responded, right? There's gotta be on some level a sense in which I have to realize God had to really do something, had to press into me before I ever reached out for him. And so this idea that you almost have to be like, well, your healing doesn't come until you have this. We've created a works-based miracle salvation and that's not gospel. So this man... No real evidence or any real faith. and we've got several examples in the scripture where there are people who don't really have evidence of faith, uh, or even on, on their part, even, even a sense of repentance sometimes. It's just the grace of God, the mercy of God that's on display here. Now, this man gets healed, and you have this incredible situation, and then John throws in this detail. That day was the Sabbath, and that matters. This is going to get back to authority and tradition and how we choose to view who God is and all that. And so he picks up his mat, he walks, the day was the Sabbath, and verse 10, and so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath, the law prohibits you from picking up your mat. That just sounds crazy, but yes, the law forbids you from picking up your mat. And he replied, the man who made me well told me to pick up your mat and walk. Now there is a little bit of, but I don't blame him, right? A little blame shift in there because they're immediately going, hey, you, you just stepped over the line and yes, yeah, miraculous, you can even step, but you stepped over the line uh, and you know that that's actually sinful, right? You know, you shouldn't actually, which is just so peculiar, right? They, you would have thought the first thing would said is it's been 38 years. How are you doing this? But when you're so married to your tradition, you will miss the very heart of God. Let me put it another way when you're, this is going to sound really controversial, you can be more married to the word of God than the heart of God. Please hear this. You can be more married to the word of God than the heart of God. Now you might say, why are you splitting the two? That's not right. They should be synonymous. Well, in theory they should, but the problem is we just started at the top. You can have your idea of what the verses say and still have your own personal renderings of how things should be. All you've been doing is marrying your verses to your own subjectivity, right? You've just been marrying verses to your man-made, woman-made, human-made, whatever pronoun we want to throw in, made thing. You've, you've married that and then said, okay, that's God's word now. See, that's what they were doing. See, when they, when they look at him and say, you're carrying your mat, why are you doing this? You know why they did that? Because they knew that the scripture said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And so much of the way they viewed their life was rooted, a, really, a lot of the, your learned Jewish rabbis had tied holy, holy living and what it meant to please God to how they viewed the Sabbath. It's really important. Because again, God's word does say, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And they were going, this is a mandate. And it is. It's not a, it's not a, 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 a suggestion it's not a, if you get around to it. So y'all please hear that. Jen preached an incredible sermon about Sabbath. Remember that. Somehow, some way we have to figure out how to remember the Sabbath, set it aside, keep it holy. It must be something other, and there's a whole lot in that, right? So they, they, they knew that, that it said that, but then they had to figure out, okay, well, how do we ensure that we don't break this? I got it. Let's create a bunch of rules to ensure we don't break it. So they created rules. A matter of fact, they created uh, not only rules, they wanted to ensure that the Sabbath law was not broken. So they defined 39 types of work that were forbidden on the Sabbath just to make sure nobody broke the rules. See, once you get to that place, you've kind of opened up a whole other box. Once you get to that place, it's almost like this. Don't go to this area. Great. You know what we're going to do? We're going to create a a rope around that area. All right, here's the rope. Oh, but you know what? Somebody might get close to that rope and they want to get in the area. Let's create a rope around the rope. So they create a rope around the rope. You know what? That rope is real flimsy. Let's create a fence around the rope, around the rope to make sure. The moment you see somebody jumping over that first fence, you're in sin. Why? I'm not tempted to jump over that rope. You would have been. I'm not tempted to go to that role, So why is it that you're holding me accountable for rules about rules about rules about God's heart versus just God's heart? That's what they did. So there were 39 different categories of work, and if you violated any of those 39, that would be. It. I have a few of them here. This actually comes from some of the, the some of the, the one resource of some of the biggest rabbinical commentary on the law, known as the Mishnah. And here's something that it says: the main classes of work are 40 save 1 that was always a, f- a way that they would always describe the word 39 40 save 1 sowing plowing reaping binding sheaves threshing winnowing cleansing crops grinding sifting kneading baking shearing wool uh, washing or beating or dyeing it spinning weaving making two loops not one loop making two loops weaving two threads ordered to sew two stitches hunting a gazelle slaughtering a her- Flaying or salting it or curing its skin, scraping it or cutting it up, writing two letters, erasing in order to write two letters, building, pulling down, putting out a fire, lighting a fire, striking with a hammer, taking out uh, from one domain to another. These are the main classes of work, 40 save one. Now, there's a lot there. Now, this is, the, this is not even to, to, I think sometimes people will look at this even and go, those silly, whatever. That's us. This is not about looking at like a, other groups of people and go, they're just so crazy. That's not it. This is us. This is all of us. If I think that there's a chance that that might be sinful, I will, cre- and it's not necessarily bad, right? To create rules or w- uh, rules of wisdom, ways to live by for yourself to ensure that you don't fall into sin. There's nothing wrong with that. It's when you systematize that and then you command everyone to follow your rules that you've now created a different religion. And then you think because you have tangentially some scripture to base it on, guess what? All those fences and ropes, that's now biblical. You hear that? That word doesn't always mean what you think it means. I don't even, it's all right, because we need to be able to follow God. the scriptures for sure. But here's the thing, ensure that if something is biblical, that it is not only reflective of God's word, but it's reflective of God's heart. It can't just be, y'all, if you just look at the history of the church, some of the most horrible atrocities have been justified by scripture. And many people, specifically people from outside the community of faith, will look at that and use that as a really, in their, argument, in their opinion, a valid argument to say, why would I even trust any form of systematized religion when I look at how they have weaponized these things they call holy scriptures to harm people? And you can't just go, no, that's not true, because it is. It just is to the extent that people have used the scriptures sometimes to make scientific arguments in places where those scriptures were never meant to be a science book. But we use it and now we fight with it. See, the truth of the matter is, how do I ensure that, the, that yes, I know the scriptures and we need to love the scriptures to the extent that it reveals the heart of God to us and that we can engage the heart of God? So we should be able to look throughout history and go, yep, you're right. They were trying to use scripture, but I can tell you right now that in that example, they were not marrying the heart of God. I can show you from the same scriptures where the heart of God should have stopped them from doing this, but it didn't. So in this, when, you, when you look at this case, they're looking at, at this man who's carrying his mat, carrying it and walking and violating one or two of the 39 listed things that you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. And they're so overwhelmed by the rules being violated that they're not overwhelmed by the mercy of God. Your rules can inoculate you against the mercy of God. The things that you actually think are biblical when it's not married to God's heart, you actually not only overlook God's mercy, you'll get angry and even hate God's mercy for it. You'll get angry. You'll be like, I... Wait, no, no. that God, I, God I'm, I'm for you as long as you keep living within the box I created for you. I, it's not, don't get me wrong. We, sometimes we go too far when we're like, don't put God in a box. I say, don't put God in a box he never created for himself. God tells us things about himself. He'll never violate his own uh, uh, message. He'll never violate the things he shares about himself to us. It's the extra stuff, the places where you and I fill in the blanks about God, that creates another box. So, Jesus is stepping very much outside of these Jewish leaders' boxes. He's showing something. He's he's living, he's he's acting or practicing something that violates their tradition. You've got thousands of years of tradition on the line here. This is what they've been teaching the whole time. You don't do things. You don't heal because you shouldn't be doing any work. This man is carrying, there's there's a passage in Jeremiah that talks about not carrying uh, your load. As a matter of fact, uh, here's how how it goes. When people look at like the Old Testament forbidding work, which usually meant just make sure you're not carrying out your normal occupation so that you can actually take a, a break and a rest from your occupation so that your heart can be restored and that you can actually be rightly connected to God who gives you all the power and ability to do work and to enjoy it. So this meant don't bear loads on the Sabbath. Here's what Jeremiah says. This is what the Lord says. Be careful not to carry a load on the Sabbath day or bring it through the gates of Jerusalem. Do not bring a load out of your houses or do any work on the Sabbath, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your forefathers. Don't do work the loads, that's what they were talking about, was not talking about, hey, the mat that you happen to be sleeping on because you're really, really sick and you can't do anything. Hey, if you happen to miraculously be healed, just leave the mat there. That's not at all what this was meant to communicate. So here's what we have to know. We have to really be careful about how much of tradition becomes our authority. How much of the things that you hold on to or the things that you believe or the things that you have maybe even communicated, how much of that is rooted more in tradition than actually the authority of God's word in his heart? Sometimes there are traditions that are good. I'm not anti-tradition. The degree to which tradition helps us engage God's heart, we should continue to hold on to it. But you know, generationally, there are things that maybe certain traditions don't, don't do that anymore. So we don't necessarily need that tradition, we create something new to engage God's heart yet again. And a lot of times, traditions begin to outlive their usefulness because maybe one or two generations ago that tradition was really vital because of what was happening in the world, what was happening in the culture, and so it made sense. But now it just doesn't. It's actually kind of irrelevant to where we are right now. So in other words, sometimes tradition is really good, and other times tradition is just peer pressure from dead people. That's it. There are people who felt a certain kind of way a really long time ago because of issues they were dealing with then. They created traditions. Those issues are no longer the issues. There are new issues, but now you feel like you've got to keep holding up that tradition, even though that in and of itself is just the fences and the ropes and not God's heart. This is what Jesus is facing. This is why they're looking at him now. This man has been healed. It's been 38 years. This man has been healed. If their heart had been melted by the very presence and the very heart of God, there's no way they would fix their mouth to say the things that they say. But yet, they do. They look at the man, and you realize that not only is their tradition, right? The tradition was their authority, and that authority got challenged. But their own authority gets challenged now because they're leaders. They're the ones who teach the law. They're the ones, it's their job to teach the heart of God, and the word of God. And they're seeing this man who's functioning like God do things that don't fit into their box. And so they go and they, they see the man and they question him. And then after that, G, you know, Jesus had already talked to him and said, hey, by the way, real quick, I'm going to throw this in there. Jesus didn't just heal this man. He healed, he healed the man and then said, go and sin no more. There's always that, that, that coupling that always happens. Because sometimes you come from one place where you just, we said this before, you just want to see a Jesus that's going to meet your needs and not call you to real spiritual accountability. Or we love just the spiritual accountability and not care about the needs. And yet you're seeing Jesus really do both here. Hey, I'm glad your needs were met. I'm really glad that you're able to rise and walk. Make sure you sin no more. Make sure that you don't do anything that might bring consequences where you could find yourself sick again. And so he, he throws that out and the man goes... And he reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, sometimes people turn this into like a very anti-Semitic thing, and it's not. Whenever you're talking about the Jews, he's just talking about these particular leaders who were threatened by the power, but their power was threatened. There were several folks within this community that were like, wow, this must be really the Messiah. But these folks were very afraid that their power was threatened. And so sometimes... Tradition is just a convenient way to hold on to power, too. It just is. And so they were like, oh, goodness, if, that's, if this changes, what other traditions might change? This is how we've been able to exert our authority over the people. So uh, they start to persecute him. And Jesus responded to them, my father's still working and I'm working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. What did we say John wants you to believe? What does he want to constantly remind us of? That Jesus is God. Sometimes you'll get into certain debates with people who love to be like, well, you know, nowhere in the Bible does Jesus claim to be God. These are people that actually just want to make an argument without studying first. Because there's plenty of places where Jesus does things or says things or very, is very overtly making claims that only God can make. And he knows his audience, and he knows that these Jewish audiences would know no one could ever say something like this unless they're God. And so when he, uh, when he does these things, they realize, when he says to them, and he knows what he's saying, hey, uh, my father's still working, and I'm working also. He's, he's making himself equal to the father. He's making himself equal to God, and that just incenses them. And he sees that. And he says, truly, I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he's doing. And he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. And just as the father raises the dead and gives them the life, so the son also gives life to whom he wants. The father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son so that all people may honor the son, Just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is a very big theological statement. It's one of the first real theological statements Jesus makes about himself and his relationship to God the Father. Because he ultimately says, listen, everything I'm doing, I'm doing because this is what my Father does, and we're one. He's making a claim about himself that honestly would be very blasphemous based on the, the, the authorities that were, the ways that they had been taught to understand the scriptures, the ways that they had been teaching others to understand the scriptures. So they look at this, they're looking at Jesus making these claims, healing people, violating these rules that they think are, are, are biblical and authoritative. And they see Jesus doing these things and they look at him and they go, we got to get him out. We, we've got to get him out because... Our authority is challenged. So here's, this is a big question. What, what authorities do you have right now that are threatened by Jesus? Like, honestly, what, what he, he, here's how you know it, right? If somebody comes and goes, hey, based on what, we're, what we know about who God is, this right here is something that might need to change and you're just threatened or you're like, no, your, your knee-jerk reaction is, no, that can't be true because my grandma always said, X, Y, and Z. That, that, that can't be true because my dad always told me or, or my, this relative was a pastor and they always told me this. It's not necessarily, um, man, you know, I, I, I got to think about that because, okay, I can see where God's word says this and I'm trying to wrestle with maybe where God's heart is here. It's more like, no, my upbringing teaches me or no, what I've experienced in my life tells me because sometimes our experience is the authority. Sometimes our familial connections are the authority. Sometimes our pain is our authority. Sometimes our woundedness is our authority. I've been hurt. This hurt me. This gives me now the authority to determine what actually is good or bad, what actually is healthy or unhealthy. That's not necessarily true either. Sometimes you can be hurt, legitimately hurt, in deep pain, and then run to other unhealthy things that might self-soothe in the moment, but still not be reflective of God's heart. But because you've been wounded so deeply, nothing can cut through to that because that has become your new authority. So what are the authorities in our lives? Like, what do we really hold to? Because Jesus comes to actually crush those areas of false authority in our lives. Not because he just says, I'm so excited to be able to go crush authority, but because he realizes that if you understand where real authority comes from, then and only then do you know what true, authentic grace and mercy is. That's when you truly know, because ultimately he says, in my authority, I see exactly what you really need. In your authority, you're not capable of knowing fully what you really need. And if you're not capable of knowing what you really need, you're not capable of going after what you really need. And so on some level, that authority has got to change. i say this last thing, for a lot of us, um, specifically in our culture today, in church culture today, in kind of like small group and small gathering culture. Um, This idea of challenging is one that sometimes we almost take too much pride in. Here's what I mean. Sometimes if you've been in certain groups, there are people who are like, you know, I, I like to be in a group where I can be around people who don't mind being challenged. Some people are like, you know, I'm just the kind of person, I'm just, I'm just wired like that. I'm a person that challenges people. That's just my personality. That's just my Enneagram number. That's just my right path. That's just my, uh, uh, what is it, Myers-Briggs. It's just, it, we've, we've found ways to justify possibly sinful behavior patterns. You see, here's, here's what I mean. You ought not, being a person that challenges people, it's not necessarily a, a good godly personality trait, right? Like by itself. I'm just a person that likes to challenge people. That's not any of the spiritual fruit in scripture. Patience, long-suffering, forbearance, blah, blah, blah. Uh, uh, the, the ability to challenge people. That's not, that's not on there. When it talks about what the, what the qualifications of an elder is, it doesn't say really good at challenging people. But somehow we get to this place where we're like, that in some way has become like a really good sign of leadership because you like to challenge. Listen, this doesn't mean we definitely need people that won't back down when it's time to challenge. But this, part, this idea of I'm, I'm God's man or God's woman because I like to challenge, none of us should actually like to challenge. Because for people i have been in this, been in other churches and even in this church, what I've heard people say I'm just a person that really, like, I, one time, I won't even say any names, I don't think they're even here anymore. But one time, that I remember someone saying something like, hey, listen, I love being in a good community where I can be challenged, even though they were not trying to be challenged. And, and, and I can also challenge other people. Uh, and th- speaking of which, who challenges you? Because I love to be that person. It's a weird thing to volunteer for. I mean, we need somebody to clean the toilets. You can go do that. But like... Yeah. Who would sign up for that? Like, you, you realize that in com- when you're in community with people, it, that's, not a, that's not a job description. It, it, it's not something that you do because you're like, this is my spiritual gift and this is just what I do because all I, I'm going to look, because you know what happens, you're in a community like that and all of a sudden you're like, you, you've been in this situation where you're realizing sometimes people are kind of just feeling you out to figure out where they can be the person to challenge. you so all y'all know. See, that's not safe. And you can't build intimacy that way. That does not mean that we avoid any time there comes a time where in safe, intimate community, somebody goes, hey, we've demonstrated our love for each other. Like, we've demonstrated that we're for each other. We demonstrate that we want to see Jesus fully formed in each other. And here are some things that I just want to ask you about. Well, here's some things I might have to really press into. But see, if you're not that person, then either A, you're not going to challenge authority well or you're not gonna be challenged well. For some people, when when something needs to be challenged, they just ghost or they just disappear. They're like, you know what? And you can do that now because there's so many other communities I can go to where it's like, and I'm not talking about church, friends, whatever, I can be like, you know what? I can find a whole other group of people over here that just won't even, even really go there. I don't even have to deal with myself. So who can I find to be around so that I can really hide from myself. See, we've got to be in a place where either A, we are in the place of these uh, religious leaders and we've got our traditions, we've got our scripture, we've got our theology, and yet we don't have God's heart. And somebody through the power and the grace of God comes into our lives and says, hey, by the way, there's a gap between what you're saying and what you're believing and where God's heart is. And that has got to press into us. That has got to do something to us. If we're going to grow as a church, if we're going to grow individually, it's got to be because we're like, I'm going to be, I need to be open to A, challenging when it seems like it's time, and receiving loving challenge and correction when it might be time. And guess what? There are going to be a lot of sacred cows that get killed in this process. There are going to be things that you held to that you just thought was gospel, and it's not. And there are going to be things that you think are gospel that got you through some things but it's still not gospel. It's just God's grace and mercy that it did. Doesn't mean it's gospel. And the work of growing and going deeper is the work of kind of breaking and even divorcing some things that are unhealthy with things that are true about God. Because what God wants to do in reforming us and changing us is cutting away everything that's not like him. And he does that through love, through correction, through comfort, and through challenge. And we've gotta be a people that are able to receive that, And we've got to be people that are able to do that. And the beautiful thing is whether you are the challenger that's done it wrong or the challenge that's done it wrong, Jesus comes and dies for each and every one of us. So if you sit here, and when we get to the table, you think through this. When you sit here and you go, man, I can think about times where... I just did not challenge well. I challenged out of a place of pride. I challenged because I thought this was just my personality type and I'm just supposed to be this. And maybe I'm really strong-willed and I have a strong personality. So nobody felt comfortable enough to say, hey, by the way, you're doing the rope fence thing, but you're not really getting to the heart of God. You're, You're tangentially tying it to the heart of God, but you're not really focused or living at the heart level. And so maybe I didn't hear that well. But I know that Jesus loves us enough to be able to go. You realize Jesus came and saw people who were these religious leaders come to faith. Jesus came and saw someone like Paul who again showed no evidence of faith and God comes and finds him. So if God goes after the greatest of all the religious leaders who lived in the fence and the rope life, and Jesus comes and ropes him in and blinds him for a minute, challenges him, challenges all the things that he thinks he believes about God, challenges all the things he thinks he believes about people who are clean, people who are not, challenges all those things, breaks that stuff away and says, Now that you've been completely broken down, I now give you my heart fully. You can live in that. That's the way Jesus loves us. That's what he came to do. So may we be a people that really does earnestly endeavor to marry God's word. To God's heart so that we can challenge and be challenged for his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your abiding presence and your abiding love in the ways that you do not leave us. God, we have so many places in our life and so many places in our heart where we construct Different levels of authority, different levels of ways of thinking, ways of functioning. And God, some of those things are good with a little g. But God, let us only see the things that are good, big g, with things that are purely your heart. Let us know when it's time to press on heart issues, not the the, the other kind of ancillary issues. God, I feel like that we need an enlarged view of who you are over and over again. So, God, the, the places in our lives where we refuse or we hide from being challenged with your heart, God, will you break us? Father, would you give us a, this, this deep longing for your heart? I, I pray that you would give us this deep dissatisfaction with all of these things we've created for ourselves to avoid that. Father, we know that it's, it's incredibly uncomfortable sometimes. It's incredibly uncomfortable to get things that were, comf- that were comfortable and, and muscle memory to have those things stripped away. Father, those things can be really hard and, and, and it can be painful. God, I pray that we would see that true union with you, true walking with you. Father, it overtakes any other thing that we thought was a comfort, it overtakes anything that we thought would help. God, and it's lasting. So God, I pray that we would be moved again by your heart. God, I pray that we would never divorce your word. I pray that we would never uh, forget the fact that we don't know your heart without your word. God, I pray that we would never exalt anything else other than your heart first. Pray it for our church. Pray it for us individually. And I pray this is done in your name. Amen.